At the northern tip of New Hampshire, the Connecticut River unravels into tributaries and a couple of lakes. This is the river that weaves down through all of New England. It ties this whole part of the country together. It's like the Mississippi River of the Northeast. And it starts right here at the top of New Hampshire. Here it's just a few streams that run into one another. Today, the valley where that happens is the town of Pittsburgh. And for a very brief time, it was much more than a town. It was its own country, called the Indian Stream Republic. It didn't last very long, but it lasted long enough to cause a minor international crisis. Can I just say this has become one of my favorite chapters of New Hampshire history. This is Word of Mouth from New Hampshire Public Radio. I'm Daniela Ali. And I'm Ben Henry. This is the first installment of our series about northern New Hampshire. We've been taking questions from listeners about the North Country, and we've been running around getting answers to them. One of the first questions we got was this one. What's left of the landmarks, artifacts, or stories relating to the Republic of Indian Stream? So I drove to Pittsburgh with our colleague Justine Paradise, and it was a really nice drive. Yeah, now it feels like we're driving through mountains again. Kind of entry, the, the ravines are getting sort of closer. Looks like there's been some rock slides here. And on the road into town, there's a sign that says Pittsburgh, and underneath that it says Republic of Indian Stream, 1832 to 1836. At the center of town, there is actually a statue of the person who led this brief independence movement. Luther Parker, 1800 to 1853. Good day. My name is Luther Parker, and I'm... Uh, It sounds like you you interviewed the statue. We did, and the recording plays in English or French. And Luther told us the story of forming the Republic almost as an act of protest because Britain and the U.S. could not agree on which country this area belonged to. I spent some memorable years here, certainly the most intense of my life. So as far as I understand about this, they wrote their own constitution. They had their own schools, the whole thing. And then after a few years, the Americans and the British sorted out the border dispute. So this area became part of New Hampshire again. Yeah, and it's this fascinating bit of the town's history, and the Pittsburgh Historical Society is actually making sure to preserve the record of Indian Stream. Okay, so Pittsburgh is full of landmarks pointing back to this history. That's one listener question down. Another question that frequently comes up when you're talking to people about the North Country is, where is the North Country? Where would you draw like the line you know, distinguishing the North Country? The, um, the notch. Um... Uh-huh. Yep. That's the town clerk in Pittsburgh. The Notches. Franconia, Kinsman, Crawford, Pinkham. Something about driving through a mountain pass makes you feel like you're entering a new place. You're crossing a boundary. Not everyone draws the line there, though. How about you? So if you had to, like, draw it on a map. Well, I would say definitely north of North Conway, uh, the Plymouth area north. Can I pose that question to you? Oh, goodness, where the North Country starts. Yeah, you are, you're located in Bath, right? Yes. Do you consider Bath to be part of the North Country? Yes, but the real North Country would be probably north of Littleton and on the other side of the state, uh, north of uh, Pinkham Notch. I'd say Plymouth North would be North Country. Okay. I think the North Country is Route 25 all the way across from Plymouth to Ossipee because Pretty much above Route 25, you can't get there from here. And you're fundamentally at the mercy of time and distance for everything that you do. Do you consider Piermont to be a part of the North Country? I 
don't really think we're a part of the North Country. We're more central, perhaps Lisbon or Littleton and North. Do you think there are people in Piermont who do consider it part of the North Country? Linda, do you think this is part of the North Country? Or what do you think? The North Country is intuitively meaningful to people, but maybe it doesn't mean the same thing to all of us in New Hampshire. And taking an opportunity to really kind of take that term and kind of peek underneath it and flip it around and and see, you know, what do we mean when we say the North Country? This is Jess Carson. She works at the UNH Carsey School of Public Policy. And she says, you know, there's no one definition of the North Country. Right. I mean, as a a New Hampshire resident born and bred, the North Country probably has a different colloquial meaning. Um, It could be, you know, north of the Notches. It could be anything north of Lancaster. I think people think about it in different ways. I've been asking people not just where is the North Country, but what are the distinct regions within the North Country? Here's Kathy Enigus. She's the former president of White Mountain Community College. Anything from Conway up into Berlin, you've really got the, the White Mountain National Forest area. You've got the Conway area, then Greater Gorham and Berlin. Then you go up to Colebrook, and it's Colebrook and Pittsburgh and Stewartston. And then on the other side, you've got Lancaster and then down to Littleton. By the way, if you're having trouble picturing where all these towns are, we have maps up on our website, nhpr.org. Kathy is describing four general regions, the White Mountains on one end, the northernmost towns on the other, in between the Berlin and Littleton areas. Another person who's thought about this question is Sally Manicki, and she works for the Conservation Fund. It's easy to zoom out to the huge level and talk about the White Mountains, which goes as far south as the Lakes region. And it goes as far north as um, Stark, New Hampshire. So it's a huge geography with a bunch of different demographics and a lot of different like categories of wealth and a lot of different land use histories. Here's the owner of a climbing gym in Lisbon, Rusty Talbot. I think pretty much anyone would recognize that this area, the, the Littleton, Bethlehem, Franconia, Sugar Hill, that corner of mostly Grafton County should be considered part of the North Country and and is viewed as the North Country, yet is in a very different place than Berlin is. And Berlin's in a very different place than Colebrook is, which is in a very different place than Pittsburgh is, right? And you've got these different sort of centers of gravity that have their own vibe Um, and their own things going on and their own challenges. Some of the questions that you guys listening to the show have emailed us about the North Country are questions about the future. What's changing? What's staying the same? For example, will public transportation in rural areas ever improve? Why does one town go through a revival while the next town over languishes? How will climate change affect the North Country? These are big questions. As a way to start thinking about the future, I asked Jess Carson about the present, 
the basic demographics of the North Country. Yeah, so if we're thinking about uh, the North Country as Coas County, uh, it's a little bit older than some of the more southern parts of the state. It's not the oldest county. The median income is a little lower. Um, it tends to be a little whiter, a little less racial, ethnic diversity in Coas, particularly when compared to some of the southern counties like Hillsborough County, where, where Manchester is located. Coas County has about 32,000 people in it, or 2% of New Hampshire. According to the census, more people speak a second language at home in the North Country compared to the rest of the state. This is probably the French-Canadian influence, which is more and more prominent the closer you get to the Canadian border. In thinking broadly about uh, employment and the economy, those measures look a little different in in Kawas. The jobs may be fewer or full-time year-round work may be a little less available to residents there. Um, So that has some contrast with some of the opportunities that might be more readily available in the more southern parts of the state. Tourism drives a lot of business in northern New Hampshire. People visit the area for the landscape and they bring with them a whole lot of money. The challenge with those types of jobs, of course, is that they tend to not be the kind of um, higher paying or well-benefited positions that would constitute, um, you know, what we might consider a quote-unquote good job. You know, we've done some work in New Hampshire that um, really explores how residents kind of feel about the tension between if there wasn't this tourism economy, then maybe those jobs wouldn't exist. But at the same time, that has real costs for people that, you know, the jobs that it's producing are not maybe the quality of jobs that residents would like. Tourism creates a lot of jobs in the service sector, but it also drives up prices, especially for housing. You know, when every plot of land is a potential Airbnb. In her work for the Carsey Institute, Jess researches the social safety net, how it's working and who's using it. This includes things like welfare, food stamps, the earned income tax credit. So those are the kind of federal and state programs. But also when it comes to rural places, we do tend to see a kind of high degree of community and local safety nets. And those can be both formal and informal. So that might mean something like a family resource center that can help support a low-income family that's trying to make ends meet, kind of connect them with resources. A lot of the challenges around providing basic services are not unique to Coas County. They crop up in rural places throughout New Hampshire, throughout the United States. But Coas is more rural, less densely populated, further from major cities than any other region of New Hampshire. I talked to a retired elementary school teacher in Lancaster, Tom Monahan, about this. Another thing a lot of people up here now are doing, traveling a great distance to their work. Uh, in the morning, yeah. sometimes I, I'm an early riser, and I I live uh, right in the middle of town, and I can look out the window, and about five thirty, six o'clock, there's cars zooming down the road, and, and a lot of pickups and cars, and they're all heading for jobs in Littleton. You know, some uh, I, I I know someone that went all the way down to Plymouth to, to work every day. Tom's lived in the area since the '60s. Now he works at the Lancaster Town Welcome Center. Gorham and Berlin. When the mills went out over there, they were affected by uh, lack of, you know, population, a lack of people. And just to show you how growth had changed, when I retired, the mill was working, and we had 345 youngsters in a K through six. And I was at the school the other day visiting, and the principal told me they have 140 now. So that's what's happened when wow. that mill closed. Uh, the, the population of youngsters just about disappeared. The high school's much smaller in numbers, too. 
And today, do you think it's kind of plateaued at that low number, or do you think it's going up? I think it's going to change. It looks like there's a couple of expansions with these industries, these small industries that are there, and they're talking about expanding. And maybe with that, they'll bring some uh, families, and the schools will be affected. Another way to think about the future of the North Country is to go even further into the past. Well, all of New Hampshire history is fascinating, but a lot of New Hampshire's history relates to these border disputes. This is Trisha Payon. She's a historian and the program manager for New Hampshire Humanities. So uh, people didn't really start founding towns up in Coas County until like pretty late in the 18th century and in the early 19th century. And it's mostly for timber. You know, that's the valuable resource that people wanted to exploit up there. But because of the fact that there's a national border there, so between what was then uh, British Canada and what is the United States in the early 19th century, it's kind of a big deal. So the North Country has Canada to the north, to the east, you've got Maine, to the west, Vermont. Each of these borders comes with its own history. New York's original grant from the 1660s said that New York's boundary was the Connecticut River. Oh, okay. So, you know, New York and New Hampshire would have been neighbors had not Vermont decided to assert itself. While Europeans were dividing the land amongst themselves, of course, they were encroaching on land where Abenaki tribes lived and in some cases still live. So there are certainly still a lot of indigenous people in New Hampshire, and they are in greater numbers in that northern part of the state. And that's partly because as European settlers were colonizing and and murdering them and bringing diseases, uh, Native people moved up, you know, moved further north. Um, And there were... Uh, Abenaki villages along the Connecticut River, um, further north into into Quebec too. So, um, and there, you know, there's a whole series of wars uh, between Euro Americans and the French, uh, British Americans, the French, and Native Americans on either side, and a long, pretty bloody history of fighting in that. Well, in all of New England, really. The timber industry that originally attracted Europeans to northern New Hampshire turned into the paper and wood products industry which fed the growth of small cities like Berlin, where the population expanded. Today, most of these mills have closed, and those populations declined. So those towns are exploring new industries like tourism, and you guys listening wrote to us with questions about that. We'll talk more about it in later episodes of this series. For now, here's one person with ties to an economic history that's not about paper mills. The brick store. Becky Mitchell owns the General Store in Bath, New Hampshire. I live in Piermont right now, and um, I am originally from Hudson, New Hampshire. W- where does the name come from, the brick store? Um, well, it's it's built out of bricks. <laughs> so that makes yeah. a lot of sense that you would call yeah. it that. Yeah. And it is the America's oldest continuously operating general store. Whoa! How old? It was built in the 1790s, the original building, but then that building burnt, and the building we're in right now was built in uh, 1824. Wow, what is it like to work every day in a building with that much history? Do you think about it constantly? Oh, yeah, yeah, of course you can't not think about it constantly, we, and it has a lot of, uh, of the original um, things in the, still in the store. Um, so people, you know, comment every time they come in. Um, there's some original counters left with the uh, counters that are slanted for the ladies with the hoop skirts uh, back in the 1800s so that they could come up right to the counter. Becky's owned the place for two years. She says business is good. 
you must get like an influx in the summer. Uh, summer, fall. Fall is our biggest time. Oh, okay. Yeah, because you guys are kind of right off a big, pretty big road. Yes. Do you think you are dependent on that kind of influx of like travelers coming for like, you know, oh, the leaves? Yeah, definitely. What to you is unique about the North Country that kind of makes it feel different to you from like southern parts of the state? Uh, slower pace, you know, quiet, small, quiet towns. There's no big cities. You know, you're not going through traffic lights in, after traffic light after traffic light. Here's another little piece of the North Country, bulldog sauce, as told by Sean Marquis from Berlin. We have this uh, Japanese restaurant called the Yokohama in the neighboring town, and they serve something called kushi, uh, which is kind of like a kebab that's breaded with chicken and uh, onion and green pepper. And on your kushi, you put this stuff called bulldog sauce. People are ravenous about it up here, and I don't know if that's really shared anywhere else in New Hampshire that people use this. It's delicious. I highly recommend it on chicken fingers. Some people use it on steak. It's kind of, it's a dark sauce. It looks maybe like a thick soy sauce, and it tastes um, both savory and sweet. But I know that plum is one of the, one of the leading ingredients in it. So it's like a vegetable fruit sauce. Most houses um, would have a bottle of bulldog sauce. They sell it at the restaurant. You'll have various sizes. You can have just, I think it's like a one liter bottle or you can get the industrial gallon with the pump on the top. Coming up after the break, more from the North Country. I wanna take a moment to say We want to keep hearing your questions about the North Country. Or, let's be honest, any questions you have. This show is motivated by the curiosity of you guys listening. Our email is wordofmouth at nhpr.org. Okay, stay with us. This is Word of Mouth from New Hampshire Public Radio. We've been taking your questions about the North Country. And a lot of you asked questions that have to do with the cost of living, the way some resources get more and more expensive or less available, or just further away in rural parts of the state. Here is one particular example of that. Daniela Alley takes it from here. Last summer, I spent some time with Sue Clodier. She's been in the childcare business for more than three decades. But in her long career, this is the first center she's worked at that actually offers care for babies as young as 12 weeks. How many calls do you get, you know, asking or inquiring about infant care, toddler care? I get at least two a day. And I've already had my quota today. And it's still in the morning. Sue works at the Northwoods Learning Center in Berlin. And they're able to care for six babies at a time. That capacity, though, is just inadequate. Last May, Sue had 17 people on her waiting list. She gets calls from women in their first trimester asking to be put on that list. And the reason for the shortage in child care for infants is complicated. Last summer, in Coas County, only five child care centers offered care for infants. And altogether, that added up to just 28 spots. For one thing, there are some strict regulations governing child care providers. For example, they need to have one adult for every three babies. Another factor is hiring, which has been tough for Sue. The other issue with infant and toddler and early childhood care in general is that 
it's really hard to find good, qualified, early childhood teachers. Katie Smart lives in Groveton, and I met her last summer. When she moved to the area in 2016, she looked for a spot for her one-year-old daughter. There was one child care center near her home that could take children under three, so she got on a waiting list. It's been over two years now, since, and they still haven't hit me up to see if there was an open position or anything. During those two years, Katie stayed at home rather than work a job or go to school, which is what she wanted to be doing. Katie's daughter is now four, so she's old enough to go to Head Start, which is like a government-subsidized preschool. Katie's working and trying to become a veterinary technician. But this is a pattern that Anne-Marie Brewer, who previously worked at Child Care Aware New Hampshire, has seen a lot of in Coas County. You know, they, they have their children, but they need to work to support their children, but they don't have care to, you know, for their children. So it's just, um, so I think that's the biggest issue is that um, they can't get to work if they don't have somebody to watch their kids. This especially applies to single parents. One possible solution Anne-Marie mentioned is a category of child caretakers called license-exempt providers. Basically, it's in-home care for kids. And the way it works is this. Someone goes through a background check, fingerprinting, and health and safety classes from the state. And once they've gone through all of that, they can take care of up to three kids who are not their own. License-exempt providers can even get paid through child care scholarships if the family they work with qualifies for that. I think it is, is a great solution to the issue up here, at least maybe temporarily, until we can get more of a highlight on the situation up here. Katie found a different solution, the kind of thing a lot of people do. Her mom helped take care of the kids while Katie worked. Right now, there's not a clear-cut solution to some of the basic economic problems here. It is hard to find and attract qualified childcare providers in the North Country in part because there are other higher-paying jobs in other fields. But for Anne-Marie, the long-term solution, she says, needs to be bigger than license-exempt providers. Local businesses also need to find ways to support their workers as they try to find childcare. I drive, you know, around and I see buildings and I'm like, that would be perfect. You know, we have an old... um grocery store uh, when you're coming into Gorham, and I don't know if you saw it there, but um, I mean, there's so much potential in these places, but nobody wants to invest up here either. Childcare is just one industry that struggles to provide a basic service at an affordable cost in rural parts of New Hampshire. Grocery stores are spread much thinner in some places. High-speed internet is incredibly costly to install in rural areas. Public schools struggle to hire and pay qualified teachers. This is the whole category of problem that usually doesn't have an obvious solution. In part two of our series on the North Country, we are going to dig deeper on a topic we only barely mentioned today, and that is tourism. Much of northern New Hampshire has undergone a titanic shift from a timber-based economy, like the paper mills, to a seasonal tourism-based economy. That shift has had winners and losers. That's next time on Word of Mouth from New Hampshire Public Radio. This show is created by me, Ben Henry, Daniela Alley, Justine Paradise, and Jimmy Gutierrez. Our executive producer is Erica Janik. Maureen McMurray declared her corner office a sovereign country. Thanks for listening.